if you go through a, a head injury where you have to change your job or you go through therapy for a couple months or whatever it is, your priorities are going to change. Your experience is going to change who you are. You should be malleable. You shouldn't be the same person at 40 as you were at 18, right? And so it's not really looking for, I want to be the person I used to be. It's how can I get to the place where I'm super happy and functional with where I am? And these are my new goals. And this is how I'm going to get there. I'm Jamie Mo Crazy, and you're listening to Life Gets Mo Crazy, where we'll hear from people who either been through a trauma or helped someone else through it. Listen and learn strategies you can implement in your life so when a metaphorical avalanche slides you down the mountain of life, you can climb an alternative peak with the best view. I'm here today with Lauren Zayax, who had a head injury in 2014 that changed her life. Now, this was not something that happened in the blink of an eye. This was a progression. It was actually her ninth concussion that changed her life. And two years later, she created Phoenix Concussion, a free education website, and returned to play. So that's what we're going to talk about is when something causes so many deficits and it's been growing, and then how do you climb an alternative peak after you're slowly sent down the mountain? So Lauren, thank you so much for joining me so we can talk about your head traumas and what you've done with them. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start out talking a little bit about what happened with your ninth accident, um, your ninth concussion, and let's just grow from there. Okay, so I fell snowboarding. I hit the left side of my head. Um, It wasn't a hard hit, but it was one of those where you just get that feeling like you know something's wrong, and I just got that immediate pit in my stomach, and I was just kind of like, oh, this one is not going to be good. This is not going to be like the others. Um, and then my symptoms started, you know, I initially felt that like sort of oncoming doom. What's really crazy is that day heading into the trees, I had this really horrible feeling in my stomach the moment I turned into the trees and I wish I had listened to that feeling and turned back, but then I guess life would have been very different than it is now, um, in a lot of ways. And so, um, I hit my head, I got back up on the chairlift and I started getting really dizzy. My neck hurt really bad. I had really bad headaches And that was when I knew I had to call it for the day. Um, And we ended up in the emergency room uh, just getting checked out. So that's sort of that day. And then I'd had a lot of head injuries before that one, um, as you mentioned. And, you know, in 2014, people weren't doing too much for treatment. Uh, My injuries before that, no one was doing anything. And so I just kept working and I could tell I wasn't right. Um, I had recently started a new job, so they didn't know me that well. So they knew I was off, but they didn't know me well enough to know how off I was compared to normal. Um, they did tell me a couple years later, we were a little glossy eyed for a few months there, uh, which would have been nice to know earlier in my recovery. And so it took me a few months to really realize how bad my injury was or to come to terms and acknowledge how bad it was. I'm not sure which of the two it is. Um, and that started my trajectory through the healthcare system, sort of failing out of places or not getting the answers that I needed Um, until I eventually found people who could give me the right answers. And it ultimately led me to an entirely new career path. So that's sort of the the summary of it. 
Well, I'm so glad that we're talking right now because I'm actually involved with the Utah Brain Injury Council Mm -hmm. and talking about traumatic brain injury, survival, and recovery. And that's one of the huge, huge problems we have in the U.S. is the so-called mild traumatic brain injuries that are left unattended and they grow to develop huge deficits. And it's something that actually um, federally the Biden-Harris administration is focusing on right now in their in their health plan is about we have millions and millions of individuals in the U.S. who have mild traumatic brain injuries, which are concussions, and they mm-hmm. don't get any help. They don't get any symptoms. Their their boss doesn't know. Like, if you get a concussion, you probably didn't really tell your boss. Like, quite often, you, you don't tell your boss at the beginning, and then you don't take any time off, and all of a sudden, these deficits grow, and then they get out of control. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a real problem. And people also don't know where to turn, which is part of the problem, too. Um, some of that's because the research is still very much so in, in many ways in its infantile stage. Um, but but there's so much out there now that we can do that was not accessible in 2014, um, especially not here in Utah. And I went to all the major places and it just it wasn't working for me, you know, and, and concussion or mild traumatic brain injury is especially hard because it's not always a visible deficit. So people don't take it as seriously or people discount you. I remember... Um, So I had this problem where I would sort of Kramer through a doorway, depending on the age of the people listening to this, they might not know what that means. But um, Kramer from Seinfeld used to kind of jolt through the doorway and bounce into the doorframe a little bit. And so because of my inner ear problems and my binocular vision deficits or the way that my eyes work together, I didn't always know where I was in space and especially if I was distracted. So I would be in a treatment room working with a patient. I would um, walk through the doorway and I could treat them just fine. I just want to clarify that. Um, I could treat them just fine. It was just the endurance and the fatigue and the dizziness and the symptoms that I would have, but I was lucky enough that I could perform. And so people just discredited how I felt. And so I would walk through a doorway and I would sort of hit my shoulder and bounce, you know, kind of thing. And everybody just thought I was quirky and weird. Cause like I said, it was a newer job. Um, and I went to the doctor and I was like, this isn't normal. Like I played multiple sports. I traveled with the U S ski team. Like I snowboarded on some of the hardest mountains. Like I should be able to walk through a doorway and not bounce into the door frame and hurt myself. And the doctor told me essentially that I was crazy, gave me a psychologist home sell and work number and their email and told me that a lot of strong women have problems sometimes and they just need a little psychological help. And that was my doctor's visit. And it was so infuriating because I was like, okay, I might be depressed. I might be anxious because I felt like garbage now for six or eight months, right? But that's not the reason I'm walking into doorways. It's not because I've invented this problem in my head. And so when I finally found the right people, um, shout out to Jen Thomas at the VA, because she literally saved my life and I love her. Um, and she trained me to do vision therapy. So I owe her pretty much everything. But um, when I met her, she was like, oh, well, you have a convergence insufficiency, which is a problem with the way your eyes work together um, and affects your depth perception and your reading. You have a vestibular problem. She, you know, she's not a vestibular therapist, so she didn't know what it was, but she knew which direction to point me in. And it turns out I had a hypofunction on my right side. So my brain literally didn't know where I was in space. And then my eyes didn't work together well enough to make up for it. And so when I had to do something like walk through a doorway, particularly when I was distracted, I would run into it. It was such a simple, easy answer to such a debilitating problem that was discredited in the medical field because people didn't understand and they weren't willing to say, I don't understand. Why don't you go here instead? They just label you with psych issues, which is really unfair. 
Yeah. And that's, wow. Everything you just said (laughs) gives me so many shivers because I just, every word I'm just like, yes, yes, yes. And like my accident was a bit different, but how you said they just label you and they refuse to say, you don't know. Now, just to make it clear really quickly, my older sister is a doctor. I think very highly of doctors in the medical field. And she will tell you that when my accident happened, she said the biggest problem with the medical field is that we all went through so many years of training that we think we should know everything. So they're going to give you an answer and not say, I don't know. Here's some things that could happen. They tell you what will happen. And so they told my family I was never going to be an individual able to support themselves. I was never going to have a job. I had all these symptoms that were going to be permanent after my brain injury with statistics showing that that was what was going to happen to me. However, it did not happen because, you know, Mama Mo crazy. She did not want to listen to them. <laughs> she, definitely she was like, not. <laughs> No, no, you, whatever she becomes, I will love her. Sometimes I have to remind her like when I'm doing something now. Um, But, you know, she, they wouldn't let me focus on, or I didn't even know at the time, but all, all the family around me, because I was so injured, they wouldn't let anyone focus on how I was told to become because my mom said, no one actually really knows what you're going to be. And so now that's a protocol that they've changed. They say, here's some outcomes that they could have, but we don't know right now. Here's what you should do. And here's the outcomes they can have, which is a huge protocol change that they had at Vancouver General Hospital. I'm so happy about it, but it's something that needs to be changed all over the US. And then especially for all different forms of brain injury and more, it's even more prominent with mild concussions or concussions because they say that they give something, some other reason for it. They don't recognize how many people are actually affected by symptoms from a concussion and they can be changed. Like what you just said about like your convergence, like you can do things to change those struggles. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is important to know, like, I'm definitely, I mean, I'm a healthcare provider, so I'm definitely not anti-healthcare providers, but you know, I think that unfortunately my story is a very common story. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. become disenfranchised with the medical system. So instead of continuing to seek out answers, they sort of give up. And that's definitely not, you know, my whole goal and my goal with Phoenix and my entire career now is to sort of streamline this approach, get the information out there so that you can be an informed consumer. So if you go to an eye doctor and you know that you have trouble reading and you know things go blurry intermittently and they don't know what they're looking for, it's okay. It's not that big a deal, but you have to go and find somebody else for right now. So you have to go on a website like locate.covd.org and find a particular type of eye doctor that can specialize in those areas. So it's the onus is still on the patient that if you luck into an incredible facility, that's wonderful, stay there, continue to get better. But if you get that feeling in your gut, like this is not the place for me, or I've plateaued, you know, don't go somewhere for 60 sessions when you haven't made any objective progress, which I will see patients come through the door and they just didn't know where else to go. So they just stayed. And that's not okay. You know, you know, always be looking for the next answer neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to continue to change. And this has now been proven. So it was a theory for a really long time that our brains can change Mm -hmm. across our lifetime, but it's now been proven. So as long as you continue to stress the system in a new and functional way, your brain will continue to evolve and make changes long-term. So if you're five years out from your injury 
if you're a decade out and you still have things that you need to work on, you can always work on it. So just to be like super honest about my story, but then also positive for listeners and other people struggling, there are answers to these problems. It just takes a little bit more of an onus on us as the patient for right now until the medical community really catches up across the board. Yes. And even when the medical community catches up, it's still your body you're right. You are the person who knows you the best, hands down, no matter what. So at any time in the future, like you have the power. I think that's one of the big things that people don't realize. Like if you have a severe traumatic brain injury like mine, the caregivers don't realize they have the power to communicate and talk to the doctors. And it's not interrogating them. It's not seeing their deficit, like just being so difficult. It's actually talking to them to find the best result because there might be some different ideas. Like I know that in my story, because my older sister, who is a doctor, was making the rounds, she was questioning one of the things that they were giving me, um, how much they were sedating me. And they actually changed because of that. And then getting more in the future so that you can do if you're not a doctor. Mm -hmm. When my mom was having some ideas, she would she would talk to the physical therapist about some things. So like one of the things was I really wanted to do something more crazy again. I wanted to go skateboarding in rehab and I couldn't go skateboarding at the time when I was in rehab. So they communicated and found a way for me to um, go skateboarding on the apparatus that usually we learn how to walk. Mm -hmm. So I was in a harness mm -hmm. and they came up with a solution to reach the outcome I wanted while taking a different path to get there. And so that's possible. It, it kind of has to do with the neuroplasticity idea and like everything you're talking about as well. Like if you have an idea of what you want, you have to find different ways to get there and, and don't stay with one healthcare provider if they're not actually the right path. Yeah. And also being really verbal about what your goals are, right? Like if we don't know, you know, if, if a patient comes to switch gears, like if a patient comes in the office and talks to me and I don't know that patient, right? I don't know their whole backstory. And so if they don't tell me, well, skateboarding is my goal, like I might stay in my frame of mind of, okay, I have to meet these objective goals because insurance is only going to give them this many visits. And you know, I don't want them to end up with a bill at the end. And so in our mind, there's so many convoluted pieces because of the way our healthcare system works that we have to work towards and access issues. And well, I have to get this patient out because I need to make room for another one. And they're, you know, 90% better. So like, what can I give them to sustain themselves independently? And so if you don't verbalize what your goals are or what you're not getting from therapy, you can't expect them to read your mind, right? Like, just like if you're fighting with your mom and you don't explain to her how you feel, you can't expect her to read your mind and know what you're looking for. And so that just kind of goes back to being your own advocate and a more severe brain injury like yours, Jamie, obviously your caregivers have to be your advocates, right? Like they have to be the ones that are standing up for you. In MTBI or concussion, it's just, it's different. And I wouldn't, I was going to say the word harder, but that's not really appropriate, but it's, um, the patient mostly advocating for themselves. Sometimes the younger ones will come in with a family member or maybe a spouse will come in every once in a while. But for the most part, it's just you and your provider. And if you're more timid or if you're more anxious or if you have more of that like type A people pleaser personality, sometimes those things can get lost 
sort of in communication. And so knowing even little things that you don't think matter, like um, one of the big changing pieces of our entire practice has been this work in dysautonomia, which is actually much more correlated with head injuries than we ever knew before. And the research is building. It's it's quite incredible. And it's changed the way I think about a lot of things um, and my own personal health journey, because I ended up getting diagnosed with POTS in the last year. POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And so what it means, um, so, so dysautonomia in general is a deregulation of your autonomic nervous system and your autonomic nervous system controls that in, in a really simplified way, that fight or flight, rest and digest. So that sympathetic parasympathetic balance. And in that it touches every organ in your body. But what is really cool is that the easiest way to monitor dysautonomia and to identify it is actually by tracking heart rate with activity. So it takes this really difficult idea and this all encompassing problem and it essentially simplifies it down to a really manageable issue um, once you know what you're looking for. So sort of the onboarding of treating dysautonomia is really intense and overwhelming, but the actuality of treating it is not so bad once you get used to it. Um, and so I actually have been struggling with, with this for 10 years since one of my injuries um, in 2009 or 10. I can't remember now. Um, but anyway, so I went for my first cardiac stress test in 2009, because I was getting really lightheaded after I would run. And they just told me, Oh, you just have low blood pressure, like there's nothing really wrong with you, just modify your exercise, goodbye. And I just systematically kept getting worse and worse. And I got to the point where I physically could not exercise because I would be so wasted, tired and exhausted that I actually wouldn't be able to walk after I would ride a bike or I would go for a walk. And so some people just continue to torture themselves. My mentality was like, well, if I want to be able to work today, I can't exercise. And so the more deconditioned I became, the weaker my organs became and the more involved my condition became. And we started treating this simply because of easy things that patients would just drop little nuggets. Like I can't regulate my body temperature anymore. Um, when it's hot out, all my symptoms get worse. And I started hearing these things and it became a pattern. And so we started looking into it more. And then I had a um, patient say to me, well, what's really weird is I can't stand still and braid my hair in the morning. If I stand perfectly still, my vision goes black and I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I was like, well, wait a minute, that's got to be something like, let's dig into that. But also in my back of my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I have that too. But at that point I'd been to seven doctors. I had gone to a doctor who actually made me pee in a jug for 24 hours. It turns out they were looking for this thing called mast cell um, syndrome which I didn't have. Um, and so I had kind of put a lot of those symptoms on the back burner and just thought there was something wrong with me. I was just weird or I was just deconditioned or out of shape or whatever. And it was these little kernels that patients were dropping that made us put the pieces together. And so now treating dysautonomia and POTS is a huge part of, of my practice because it's ever pervasive. And most of our patients have it in, in a, either a more mild case or more significant case. And so POTS is just a subset of the umbrella term of dysautonomia. Um, and there's very strict criteria to be diagnosed with POTS. It has some different flavor to how you treat it, but ultimately it's a spectrum and people just enter the spectrum in different places. Um, and then they leave once they've met their, their functional goals. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you didn't mean to pivot like that on you. <laughs> No, that's okay. I just learned a lot because I didn't 
really know what POTS was. And so So if you're a listener and you have weird symptoms that no one else has been able to explain, you have poor exercise tolerance, you get lightheaded or have visual changes when you're standing, especially standing perfectly still, that's sort of a hallmark for POTS. Because what happens is when you go from laying down to standing or from sitting to standing, this happens for everybody, a third of your blood volume drops into your legs. And what happens in a person who doesn't have an autonomic dysfunction is that their body naturally just pumps all that blood flow back up. So you never even notice. Maybe teenage girls especially, they get a little lightheaded when they stand and then they can walk just fine, right? So that's not a dysautonomia. That's just a postural blood pressure thing. It's really common in teenagers. So um, for the most part. So for POTS, what happens is as they stand there, their blood flow continues to pool into their legs. And so their heart rate has to get faster and faster and faster because their brain is signaling that they're not getting oxygen. And if that continues for long enough, they start to get that ringing in their ears and their vision starts to go gray and they feel like they're going to pass out. As soon as they start to move and they start to sway or they rock on their heels or they take a few steps, that blood flow starts to get pumped back up. And so their symptoms become less. So these are people who will actively avoid standing perfectly still as much as possible because they can't tolerate it. They physiologically cannot sustain their homeostasis and stand still at the same time. So if you extrapolate that out to walking across a room, lifting objects, working all day, um, playing sports, their system is in a constant state of essentially being maxed out. And so they become very fatigued. They end up with diagnoses like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, their sleep gets impaired, their mood, um, their ability to tolerate infection, their autoimmune disorders kick in. Um, About 80% of people who have POTS will also have a coinciding autoimmune disorder. So they become very sickly and exercise in a very structured way is actually the top treatment. So what makes them feel so sick actually inadvertently is the treatment. You just have to do it the right way and meet the people where they're at. Wow. (laughs) Exercise. I love, I think that exercise was such a big part of my recovery. So two things, how you mentioned, um, if someone's listening and they have these symptoms and they want to get over it, you gave some advice, but also how can they look into Phoenix concussion? Yeah. So, um, I need to update the website. I don't have very much about POTS on there right now. Um, but they can go to phoenixconcussionrecovery.com. Um, and it's Phoenix, like the bird or the city in Arizona. Um, also a great resource for dysautonomia and POTS is dysautonomiainternational.org. They are the organization that's doing the most work to bring awareness. Um, so those would be the top two places. And if you are struggling with symptoms that you think sound similar, you can Google an autonomic disorder clinic in your area. That's usually the easiest way to find somebody. Um, and then it might have a different name depending on where it's housed. But usually it's an autonomic disorder or a dysautonomia clinic in general. And there's a few big ones. And then there's programs like us where, you know, I don't have a huge clinic yet that's just dedicated to that, but we're able to successfully manage it. So you can find your way into these areas. It just takes a little extra work and a little extra digging and advocating for yourself. And you mentioned um, exercise. If you know the right exercise to do, is there a generic exercises that help this or is it different for each person? You know, it's such a complicated medical issue because it touches all the organs in your body that I don't feel comfortable saying sort of a blanket treatment protocol. I can tell you that most patients, it is very slow starting. Like patients will start literally laying on their back, 
um, rubbing their feet up and down the walls, doing wall slides. And that will be considered cardio to them. But remember, it's a spectrum. So you can have exercise intolerance after a concussion that also follows a protocol. You just won't start as low. So it's really, it really should be tailored to each patient and what their system looks like and how their body responds to exercise versus a blanket protocol. Um, and that's going to be a big part of my research moving forward is I want to standardize and make these protocols as objective as possible. There are some pretty blanket protocols out there like the Levine and the CHOP, which are incredible. And we always have to pay respect to where this all came from. Um, but my goal is that we make them um, more objective and more tailored to the patients as we move forward. Um, and I think that also COVID is going to bring a lot of awareness to POTS because you're starting to hear a lot about autonomic dysfunction post-COVID. So I'm hoping that as the awareness builds, um, we will do a really good job in the medical community of uh, sort of going off the coattails of that awareness that's building. And we'll, we'll start to really hone in some really good research and build what's already available and make it much better. So for each individual, tailoring to specifics for that individual are so important with everything to do with the brain because everyone's brain is so unique and everyone responds to things differently. So I was taking a person-centered practice class and we were talking about how, you know, if you give a nonverbal person a piece of meat and they throw it, have you looked in to see if they're vegetarian? <laughs> have you looked in to see if they're vegan? Because that happens a lot in our medical field. If they will have these ideas that they want and they will just have blanket, like broad ideas and statistics and they'll forget to focus on that each person is an individual. And that might not be a behavioral issue. It might be as simple as that individual does not want a piece of chicken. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Uh, one of the big things I'll say to patients or to colleagues when I'm presenting or things like that is uh, my favorite analogy is when we all, we all go to the airport, right? And some people have a carry-on bag and some people have checked luggage. Everyone's going to get on that same plane and everyone's going to get to the same area. And some people are going to walk off the plane and cruise through security, right? And some people are going to have to spend a little extra time at baggage claim. And so that is really the world of head injuries to me. Whatever you walk into your head injury with, I had eight prior pretty bad concussions, right? So that injury that wasn't that big of a deal wrecked havoc on my life because of the amount of baggage I brought with me. And then how long I had to spend a baggage claim, how long I had to be in therapy in order to be able to make the gains that I wanted to be able to make. So really remembering in the back of your mind that we're all human beings. We have, you know, people have histories of anxiety. People have histories of abuse. People have histories of concussion, ADD, ADHD, migraines, um, all kinds of things that make us the complex human beings that we are that walk around on the planet. And so when you use the term protocol, you really want to be careful that it's not truly, none of my stuff is a true protocol in that it's always adaptable to that person. And everybody always starts and stops wherever it's pertinent for them. Um, and so when you're the patient, really remembering that and, and being forthcoming with your information, don't hide anxiety from us. Don't lie about your history. We really want to know and feel open and confident that we can hear about it. And then that will play into how I make decisions for you and how I guide you through your treatment so that we can all get to the right place. So if you're a vegetarian, I want to know you're a vegetarian <laughs> or I got to read your chart if you're nonverbal. Um, and then I have to modify myself to adapt to what your needs are. And, and that's a key part of healthcare in general. And it has to be a give and take patient and clinician. So both ways, we both have to give and take with each other. 
That's a great analogy, the baggage claim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're getting to the end of our time. So is there any last thing you would like to say to listeners about our talk? Always advocate for yourself. Um, Know that you're never going to be the same person on the other side. I get this question all the time. Like, how am I going to get back to my old self? If you go through any life-changing experience, you get married, you have a baby, you have a death in the family, whatever it is, you're not going to be the same person at the end of that experience. If you go through a, a head injury where you have to change your job or you go through therapy for a couple months or whatever it is, your priorities are going to change. Your experience is going to change who you are. You should be malleable. You shouldn't be the same person at 40 as you were at 18, right? And so it's not really looking for, I want to be the person I used to be. It's how can I get to the place where I'm super happy and functional with where I am? And these are my new goals. And this is how I'm going to get there. You know, I I went to PT school because I wanted to work in professional sports And I now work in a hospital and treat brain injuries full time. So life is what happens when you're making other plans, but it's finding a way to be happy with that and finding a way to have your values be met, not being the exact same person you were before your injury. I think that's the key takeaway because that's a tipping point where people can't get better because they perseverate on all of that loss. And you have to process that those feelings are valid, but you have to find a way to get to the other side so that you can live a full, happy, functioning life. I think that is so amazing. And I agree with you 100%. And I tell everyone now that's the same thing with COVID. Everyone's like, we're just going to get back to exactly who we were. And it's like, no, you're not like you can climb a mountain and it might even have better views. But you're not going to climb that mountain you were on before. Let's hope the system doesn't go back to exactly the way it was before COVID. I think I think we've had the light shine on too many things for it to go back exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's not going to go back exactly the same. So take what we can learn from it. And, yeah. you know, some things will come. We'll be more social again, but hopefully we'll climb a peak with better views, you know? Like, I just hope it's gorgeous and we'll just keep climbing. <laughs> That's great. But anyways... Thank you so much for coming on. And I had a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, keep your chins up. It's going to be okay.